Insights, interviews, and best practices by clinicians for clinicians. Welcome to GE Healthcare's Clinical View Podcasts. Thank you for listening to Clinical View Podcasts, brought to you by GE Healthcare. Expand your view at clinicalview.gehealthcare.com. Top Bed Talk. Hello and welcome to Euroanesthesia 2023, the annual meeting of the European Society of Anesthesiology and Intensive Care. It's Top Med Talk on the Edwards booth. I'm Desiree Chapel, and I'm joined by Monty Mythen, my co-host. Hello, Monty. Desiree, great to see you. Great to be here. It is day one of Euroanesthesia. It's uh, it's fun here in Glasgow. And I know it's a recurring theme since post-COVID where we say what a buzz there is. There and how is. But actually, I think this is the busiest trade exhibition we've been in in the post-COVID period. It's busy. It it's, is. Which I is great. Agree. Yes, I know. I love it. There are lots of, and lots of familiar faces, lots of friends uh, that we, that we're seeing. It's, it's hard to walk just uh, down one row without seeing somebody that you know. And, and high level, everyone has made a great effort to give lots of engagement opportunities, I think yeah. is the thing. There's lots of reasons for people to be in here looking at yeah. the amazing technologies on yeah. display. I think that's probably been one of the most exciting things for me is is actually getting out and seeing what we could not see for a couple of years and you know new technology, new new drugs, new conversations. Not to undermine how brilliant the program is that takes place yeah. outside the breaks. Yeah, wonderful and, lunchtime session today that we were in. Like some of your guests you're about to introduce, and I had to walk away from something I wanted to stay in, which is about the microcirculation. Oh. <laughs> a pro con debate. About oh the my goodness! Yeah, that is something right up your alley. Well, we'll have to we'll have to dive into that a little bit later. Monty, we've had some great conversations on Top Med Talk uh, today. Uh, numerous. Um, some we will be putting out tonight. Some we're going to hold on and, and uh, put out some teasers over the next couple weeks. So do check those out on topmedtalk.com. We, we do want to think, take a minute and thank all of our sponsors, Monty, for helping keep Top Med Talk lights on, free open access to the world. Absolutely. So, you know, we have a whole raft of sponsors now. We couldn't keep it, as you say, free open access. But a very big shout out, as always, to Edwards. Not only at the moment on their booth, we were on the GE Healthcare booth earlier, another great sponsor. But Edwards are our original sponsor. We wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for them bravely sponsoring our first attempt. Yeah. <laughs> attempt <laughs> they they took a chance. Podcast was fairly new back in, in 2017, uh, whenever you uh, started. Uh, exactly. I've just checked. We've, we've just gone over 1,700 podcasts. Yeah. And Not how sure many? if that was a great idea. <laughs> we are just, <laughs> if you exhausting. just look at the main podcast website, yeah. we're just shy of 2 million downloads. I know we keep talking about the 2 million threshold. If you add in the other ones, the other subcategories, yeah. we're already over 2 million. But we've got to get that primary one over 2 yeah. million. And we're just about there. I'll say we're on the precipice. It's happening anytime. Yeah. It, well, it might be this podcast that takes us over the edge. It is. We're, <laughs> so, we're very, very close. Well, without further ado, we wanted to um, bring in our next guest to continue conversations that we've been having over the years um, about uh, numerous studies that are that have come out recently. And um, here at ESA, we've had some great conversations as well. So... Happy to welcome back Bern Sogel. Bern, it's so wonderful to see you again. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here again yeah. and to join you. Yeah, we were sitting. Uh, so recently, over in 2022, we were at ASA, so the American Society of Anesthesiologists, 
in uh, New Orleans. So fun meeting. Got to have a good conversation there. And at ESA in Milan, we, we were uh, started our conversation there where we first met. Absolutely. And now we're here in Glasgow. And here and here we are. Um, so, Bird, when just really briefly, we can talk about this a little bit later. When we met you the first time at ESA in 2022, we were talking a lot about blood pressure and trying to figure out where we should be targeting blood pressures. Any more uh, revelation that you can share with us, <laughs> with us uh, on that? Well, as everybody <laughs> probably knows, in the, in the meantime, POIS 3 was published a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So a hypotension avoidance strategy versus a hypertension avoidance strategy with an outcome of cardiovascular complications. And um, basically the interoperative management um, consisted of maintaining unitary pressure of uh, around about 60 versus around about 80. Mm -hmm. So two different fixed blood pressure targets and no difference in the primary outcome. Not clinically important difference, no statistically significant important difference. So... Um, but this trial shouldn't be misinterpreted. Yeah. does not mean that hypotension is not important because, of course, nobody was randomized to hypotension. There was very little hypotension. And, as I always said, I still think that the blood pressure target should not be fixed, but personalized and individualized to each individual patient. And this is why I'm happy to announce that we already started our improved trial, ah. a large German multi-center trial in 16 centers, including more than 1,300 patients, and testing the hypothesis that personalized blood pressure management based on ambulatory preoperative uh -huh. uh, monitoring compared to routine care, which usually is 65 millimeters of mercury at the lower intervention threshold, improves postoperative outcomes in patients having major surgery. We included the first over uh, 100 patients two centers already actively recruiting and all the other 14 going to join the next couple of weeks. So we wow. are very proud that we got that trial running. And I'm very, very excited about the results that we will probably have in around about two years. Wow. You've been, you've been busy, Bert. <laughs> Congratulations on that. Well, good. Well, that so question still not answered, but it sounds like we're, we're moving in a direction where we, uh, we may have more information. So that's yeah, we still don't know the magic number for each individual <laughs> patient, but I still at the moment would say maintain mean arterial pressure above 65. There is no evidence that you should universally target higher pressures. And what we do with patients who have chronic arterial hypertension, we will probably know more about um, with the improved trial. Yeah. And we got, we're not going to go into all of the detail of what we recorded you about last time about recording the ambulatory blood pressure yeah. properly and getting a real target and nighttime blood pressures and nocturnal dippers. So we'll put it in the show notes, the link to all those ever yeah. great conversations. But we've got two studies to discuss in greater detail today. One of them published relatively recently that we discussed at our lunchtime session and beyond that. Yep. And another one which is literally published, let's call it today, in the last 24 <laughs> hours. So let's take those sequentially, Desiree. Yeah. yeah so um, the, we're just going to start with detect. Or, no, it's a great... Oh, the first the, one. Yeah. Okay. Well, first, before we dive in that, I do want to introduce our next guest who's sitting here so patiently, but a friend of ours, Thomas Deer. And Thomas, it's so wonderful to see you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Uh, this time in a new role because yes. uh, I changed uh, after 30 years of being a clinician and working in the field as an anesthetist and intensivist. 
I changed roles last year, joining Edwards Life Sciences, um, the company we are uh, at the booth at right now, which is dedicated to patient safety and uh, hemodynamic monitoring. And yeah, it was quite an interesting step, and I'm I'm happy about my new role. And so, first time after all these years in a new role at Euros Anesthesia. Oh yeah, that's true. Well, yeah. congratulations. I'm Thank sure you. it's been an interesting transition. But this has been kind of your life's work anyway, yeah? So. Yes, it is. So it, it was a logical transition for me. Um, um, yeah, and, and as I said, I enjoy it very much. Good, good. To work with great clinicians like Bernd. Yeah. Uh, no, not, no longer competing, but collaborating. And uh, uh, yeah, this is... Uh, we yeah. never competed. We collaborated and were friends. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Absolutely. Thanks, so. And we yeah. have numerous wonderful interviews with Thomas over yes. the years as well. Yeah, absolutely. On Top My Talk, you can see all those again. We'll link out. So, um, gentlemen, you've talked a, a little bit uh, today about high, high Protect, and that's what we want to dive into next. So, Bernd, tell us a little bit about that study. So we will start with Hyprotect or speak about the other trials that we spoke about in the lunch symposium. So uh, I would go for the EU Hyprotect first because okay, that's been published perfect. relatively recently. Very good. And then we'll talk about the one that was published in the last 24 Perfect. Hours. Very good. So we start with EU Hyprotect. Yeah, yeah, that was an interesting study. It was a European multi-center prospective observational registry in Oof. patients having major non-cardiac surgery. So um, it was a large observational study that we started uh, in 2021 and the aim of the study was to investigate the incidence, duration and severity of intraoperative hypotension when you use predictive monitoring, uh, monitoring that is supposed to predict hypotension from um, advanced analysis of the arterial blood pressure waveform. Wonderful. And what was the primary outcome that you're looking at again? The primary outcome is hypotension. So our hypothesis was that the incidence, duration, and severity will be low when you use predictive monitoring. Okay. And how? And Monty, you can jump in because you're much better at, at uh, diving well, into well, this. I mean, you know, um, let's call us the academic snobs. Yeah. Are going to immediately say. It's not a large, multi-center, pragmatic, randomized, controlled trial. But then you say, well, hang on a second. We've actually got enough reference data about hypotension. We can come to your own data in a second, yeah. Desiree, that everybody who's looked mm -hmm. seems to has consistently found a large amount of intraoperative hypotension. True. So at some stage, you sort of have to turn around and say, before we get to any alternative trial design or interventions or variability, Let's do some robust evaluation to see if we just reduce the incidence of that a lot. Yeah. Now, to put it in context, you, you and your group has relatively recently reported on the incidence of IOH using a measure in the United States of America, which is an approved quality measure. It is. Which is a cumulative 15 minutes, mm -hmm. one five minutes of hypotension below a threshold of 65. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And... Tell for, us the result. Yeah, so we, we partnered with another large anesthesia group. So I'm Vice President of Clinical Quality for North Star Anesthesia, large national anesthesia group in the U.S., almost 3,000 providers. Partnered with U.S. Anesthesia Partners, um, large, another large anesthesia group, and we looked at 127,000 patients. And for a mean less than 65 for greater than 15 minutes, in that 127,000 patients, we saw 29% 
um, uh, hypotension for and, those patients. And that was, and we'll come back to when we talk about the second study we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. That was, it was more common, if anything, in lower risk patients? Lower risk patients, around two, uh, two to three hours. Uh, we actually saw a large uh, population or a large percentage of hypotension in our ASCs. So ambulatory, ambulatory surgery, surgery centers. centers. So, mm-hmm. so certainly in most people's experience, hypotension is commonly Common. available. Mm-hmm. And, to, <laughs> yeah. and, and we're going to talk about the time-weighted average. So we want to give that some context. The time-weighted average is looking at, let's call it the area under the curve of the burden of hypotension adjusted for time. Yes. Because obviously the longer a case goes on for, the greater the opportunity to be hypotensive. Do you have the number for the time-weighted average? Because you want to put the results from this study in context. Yeah. What was your TWA time-weighted average? The whole 127,000 patients, our time-weighted average was 0.67 millimeters of mercury. Which doesn't sound very much, but to put it in context... The reference point we're going to refer to is 0.67. Yes. Yeah. Okay. But how much, what was the time-weighted average for your study, which is which is different in a number of ways, but the severity of the patients, if anything, is more severe patients. What was your time-weighted average? Because this number doesn't make a sense to a lot of people, but we put it in context. Yours is about 0.7 for argument's yes. sake. Yours was... I don't tell you yet. I tell you a little bit about the study before that. So, <laughs> to keep attention up. But hang on, keep so, attention up. <laughs> but what we, have, what we have is a reference point of point yes, seven. Yes, we'll come, we'll come back to it. So we tell will, us we about will the remember the, po- uh, the 0.6. Yeah. So, f- first of all, I think I would disagree with you because regarding the trial design, at least it was large. Yes, so we, yes. um, I agree that it was not a randomized control trial. I was being provocative trial. about the trial, <laughs> yeah. so I think it's a great trial. So yeah. it was not a randomized control trial, I agree. So it was an observational registry, kind of reflecting what happens in the real world in the yes. operating rooms. But, and this is the advantage of this study design, it enabled us to include a lot of patients in a short period of time. So we included 749 patients, so it is large. And, um, yeah, we included adults having non-cardiac surgery, major non-cardiac surgery defined as an expected duration of surgery of more than 120 minutes. And all of those had intra-arterial blood pressure monitoring and on top of this predictive monitoring Uh um, with this HPI technology. We didn't include patients having emergency surgery. Um, We didn't include patients having atrial fibrillation, but... Uh, besides of this or a couple of other exclusion uh, criteria, we included a broad range of patients having a broad range of major inpatient surgeries. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, well, all of those uh, patients had intra-arterial blood pressure monitoring, had their um, predictive monitoring in place. The primary endpoint was the time-weighted average. Again, this is uh-huh. the area um, under a blood pressure threshold. This was 65 in our mm-hmm. uh, study, as in many other studies, and this was normalized or divided by the duration of monitoring um, mm. simply because the monitoring time which usually is the same um, as the duration of surgery of course differs um, among different patients and we had a couple of secondary endpoints that we may talk about but for the primary endpoint and now you can re- repeat your re- <laughs> the reference that you observed in your study point seven point seven okay we'll that the median time-weighted average mean arterial pressure below 65 in the hypertect registry was 0.03 millimeters of mercury. 
and the interquartile range was 0 to 0.2. Wow. Impressive. So this is substantially lower yeah. than in that reference that you gave us. Yeah. How can you explain that, uh, Bernd? Or what is your interpretation? Why did you find such a low incidence? Well, now the trial design comes into play again, or the study design, of yeah. course. So with this results, we can not claim that using predictive monitoring causes that there is basically no hypotension. But what we can say is that in this real-world registry, more than 700 patients, uh, in centers who used predictive monitoring before, so all of those centers and clinicians working there were experienced with using the technology. When you uh, give that technology to clinicians who are able to use it, mm -hmm. um, obviously there is very little hypotension. This may be confounded by other factors. Maybe they are very interested in hemodynamics. Maybe they are very uh, well aware of the association between hypotension and outcomes. Yeah. This is something that we could only answer when we, uh, if we would have done a randomized trial. But what we take from, from this is that in this real-world evidence registry, the amount of hypotension was very, very low when patients um, had predictive monitoring treated by clinicians who were experienced with this type of monitoring. So, so can we put it in, in other words? Uh, or would you agree when I say, in the hand of experienced users, the HPI technology can almost eliminate hypertension because 0.03 is close to zero. So there is very little or almost no hypertension. Would you agree with that? I would not claim that there is a causal relation between the monitoring and uh, the uh, primary endpoint of the time-weighted average of hypertension. I would be descriptive here as a researcher and I would say, given that study design, um, in, uh, in this real-world evidence, in the hands of experienced clinicians, patients who had monitoring yeah. with this predictive technology and who were treated by those clinicians, they had very, very little hypotension during surgery. And what, what evidence would you need to make that statement, that causal relationship between the monitoring and the reduction of hypertension? If you don't just want to look for an association or just be descriptive as I try to be now, you would still need some kind of a randomized trial. It may be a randomized trial randomizing individual patients. It could also be a randomized trial uh, like a cluster randomized mm -hmm. trial, crossover trial, where you use monitoring for three months and don't okay. use it for the another three months and uh, go back and forth between those two um, clusters. But you would need to have um, a, com uh, a comparison group that um, yeah is not monitored with the HPI. And if you can then show that there is a difference, then you may uh, assume that there is a causal relation. And we were just we just literally finished interviewing Joyce Young, who had a paper co-published with Paul Miles, etc. Today, Joyce being one of the leaders in the United Kingdom in clinical research, the head of the clinical trials network there, the National Institute of Academic Anesthesia. This concept of adaptive platform trials, because this was done quickly, because mm -hmm. it's a real-world evidence, non-RCT, with a lot of endeavor and a lot of information out of it. But the classical pragmatic RCT um, to address the question has typically taken very many years. And it's so very expensive. Very, very yes. expensive. So are we, can we find a middle ground there? Do we think the possibility is there with the adaptive platform 
Bayesian analysis, making interim analyses and adapting, that we can accelerate this whole process? Well, those new study and trial designs are fascinating, of course. Mm. We've seen that during the COVID mm -hmm. uh, pandemic that you can include a huge amount of uh, patients, answer very, with this adaptive trial designs, you can answer numerous different questions in one patient population. You can, uh, as soon as you know that one treatment works or doesn't work, you can switch to the next one. Yeah. So in theory, that would also be possible for a monitoring and a treatment management strategy like this one. Mm -hmm. um, I agree with you that um, a classic randomized control trial takes time, is expensive, enrollment rates are usually low. And just uh, to give you an impression here for this registry, for this real-world evidence, It took us only nine months to include all of those patients. Yeah. And from the first patient in to the publication of the paper, it was around about 18 months. This is something I spoke about our randomized yeah, trial before. Yeah. So it will take us at least uh, one and a half years to include those 1,300 patients. Yeah. And um, here we were very quickly because yeah, we had motivated centers on board. But still, it was an international study five yeah. European uh, European countries and still we were able to get all the um, contracting and all the stuff done and, and include the patients. So it was a good example that, yeah. uh, that we are able to include patients quickly when we work together in a collaborative network. Oh, absolutely. Thomas, did you have a question? Yeah, yeah. if you compare that with a, with a RCT that is just finished uh, and Monty, you were involved in that. I'm talking optimized. about optimized too. Optimized too. Yeah. How long did that take from the planning oh, uh, we, inclusion? Five plus years yeah. into the whole exactly. thing. Exactly. So, but so now that was disrupted by COVID. But even despite that, once you have complex interventions in complex patients and you, the other challenges, because they're incredibly expensive to do, you tend to reduce your number, even though that's going to be 2,000 plus patients. Yeah. You tend to sort of go for the not necessarily the upper limit of the confidence intervals, which mm. might give you 10,000 patients. You say, well, I hope we're okay with 2,500. The other advantage of adaptive platforms is the same rigor is in there, but at least you have a chance to adapt. True. You know, yeah. which is, it's a, it's a long way to go all the way to the 2,000 plus yeah. patients and then open the parcel yeah. to open the envelope. You know, oh. when you could say, oh, man, yeah. we, you know, if we'd only done this, if we'd only done that. So. You know, I... I'm sorry to interrupt, but I have a lot of questions because this is definitely something that I'm actually dipping my toe in a little bit. Our, our organization and our, one of our facilities, um, we, are, we are enthusiasts for um, HPI and advanced hemodynamic monitoring, really. And so, you know, when we've looked at it and we're, you know, doing interventions or starting to use it, we are very enthusiastic and, and follow protocol. In Hypertech, did you actually have a protocol that you used or was just people who knew how to use the monitor and they used it to avoid hypotension? There was no study related protocol, okay. but because uh, clinicians working in those centers were experienced with using the technology, I assume that they were also familiar with the secondary screen, which It's gives, you, which gives <laughs> you gives you an idea of the underlying root cause of hypotension. Uh -huh. And um, I would assume that uh, hypotension in patients in this registry was treated more causally, more by the root cause than in other um, studies or trials where when you have a blood pressure target, uh, clinicians tend to simply use a vasopressor to increase yes. the number on the screen. So I would assume, but this is nothing that we can prove, that in that uh, registry, 
patients um, were treated uh, or had causal treatment for intraoperative hypertension simply because as part of the predictive monitoring screen, you have the secondary screen suggesting you potential reasons um, and causes for hypertension. I, I can add on that because we did ask the centers retrospectively when the study was done, did you use a protocol and if so, which kind of protocol? And as far as I remember, eight of the centers did use a goal-directed therapy protocol, mm -hmm. if you will, and four centers uh, used actually an HPI-specific protocol. Mm. So they did use a protocol, but the protocol differed between hospital to hospital. But, but were the, could you get a sense as to whether the fundamentals were the same? In yeah. other words, yes. address, preload, exactly. after after contractility, afterload. Most so. protocols had volume optimization as the first step yeah. and then looking into other causes. Because um, to give that some context, you do report in the paper roughly how much fluid was given. Mm -hmm. That's what I was going to ask. What type of drugs were given. And, you know, we had a... I mean, I've obviously read it in detail. We had another look earlier today. The amount of fluid that was given is sort of in line with the moderately liberal mm -hmm. message. It didn't look restrictive. It looked moderately liberal. And the use of vasoactive agents was, which, you know, we've talked about the phenylephrine yeah. pandemic. Yeah. You know, where you see phenylephrine infusions being run to maintain yeah. blood pressure and these large reports of no fluid and a phenylephrine infusion. Mm -hmm. As I remember, phenylephrine was relatively infrequently used compared to other vasoactive agents. And almost all the other vasoactive agents had some beta activity as well. So there's a lot of nuance in there to have a look at. That is true, and that is uh, specifically interesting because it's a European trial. You know, it was five different European countries, yeah. and I know from my own experience that uh, when you travel to different countries, mm. routine care is quite different. You know, mm -hmm. we yeah. always compare our interventions to routine care, yeah. but routine care varies substantially, uh, substantially between different centers and even between different clinicians within centers. For example, in our institution, norepinephrine is the first-line vasopressor that we basically use in every patient. But I know that in the U.S. it's different and in different European countries it's different. Yeah. And therefore, the Hypertech database uh, will be a uh, very, very um, valuable source to look deeper into those issues, um, how hypotension was treated. And even the availability of drugs differs between countries. Oh, for sure. In, in many countries, phenylephrine that you mentioned is not available uh, in Europe. It, on the opposite, we have other, uh, for example, in Germany, we have these, uh, this combined Acrinor thing that is not uh, available in other countries. So we yeah, have to there was one in there that sounded like a caffeine substitute. Exactly. What's that one? the one I mean. Okay. A, yeah. Well, what I thought was really interesting, too, is that, what was it, 95% of patients actually did receive a, quote, vasopressor? Is that right? Or, a vasoactive agent. A vasoactive agent, yes. I mean, that, the other... The other trials like Optimize 1, for example, which yeah. collected the detail in great detail from patients, you usually find 98 to 100% of patients get a bit of something. Yeah. So I don't think that's that surprising. Was it about 95% got something? So yeah. I, I don't really remember, but it may be around this. Yeah, but this is something that we see in many of our own trials too. So, for example, in, in, in trials that we do at our institution, like 100% of the patients literally have norepinephrine because it's simply we prepare it even before induction of anesthesia. Exactly. Like every patient has norepinephrine. Yeah. Um, but well, uh, what again, I thought was interesting. I'm sorry to interrupt, but to talk over you. But what you know, from my lens in the U.S., 
most people will say, oh, well, they just put neosinephrine on. So I'm doing the right thing. I, I'm, you know, I put it on everybody where that may not actually be the answer. I mean, we don't use norepi very often in the U.S., low dose, hardly at all, unless you're in a cardiac center working with hearts. So I, sometimes I get a little bit nervous about, you know, well, statements it's finding like the that. right balance, you know, between hypotension, which, yeah. which is associated with uh, organ injury. We need to find the balance between the dose of the vasopressor, the amount of fluid, yeah. and you need to identify those patients who benefit from um, an inotrope. So it's myocardial depression is yeah. one major cause of hypotension, and uh, we shouldn't forget about this. Yeah. Um, despite all the literature on blood pressure during the last decade, yeah. we should keep in mind that blood flow and blood pressure are related and that we need to treat all of those uh, different cardiovascular components. Thanks. And that we, uh, during every single episode of hypotension, need to think, does my patient need volume? What, is the, what is the cause? Yeah. Yeah. So we want to go on to the next study in a second, but uh, executive summary to close out. When you compared it with other studies in the space, you had by far the lo lowest amount of hypotension. hypotension. You had the least hypotension by a long way compared to other comparators in this space, including RCTs of using HPI. And it's difficult, but, you know, your outcomes look look pretty good, you know. So, I mean, that's always tricky. But if you look at your acute kidney injury rate, for example, and compare it to other published studies in this space, you've got the lowest acute kidney injury rate. Now, we have to be careful with association, causation, et cetera, et cetera. But that certainly sets us up to say this is a journey that we're on. Mm -hmm. This is a journey we should be traveling. We've got some important variables in there, like the amount of fluid and the choice of norepinephrine, et cetera, et cetera. But I want us to jump to, if that's okay. Yeah. I want to, is, do you agree, disagree with any of that? Absolutely. Is that fair? <laughs> I, I agree with that, yeah. I think the amount of hypotension is impressively low. Yeah. No. We started looking at the control groups of the randomized trials on the HPI because we wanted to have a comparison. And then we noticed that we even can start, uh, can look, start looking at the intervention groups uh, yeah. in, the random, in the previous randomized control trials and... Uh, yeah, the amount of hypertension was substantially lower even compared to those intervention groups. About the reasons we discussed this before, but um, I agree it was it was very low and the uh, rate of acute kidney injury is around about 9%. is lower as that described in many other studies, but yeah. here we would need a propensity yeah. uh, matched analysis to really make the claim that uh, the rate of AKI was lower than in other studies or trials. Fair. So in the interest of time, if that's all right with you, yeah. we should jump to the hottest news. Hot. Off hot, the press. <laughs> <laughs> Which is? The DETECT trial. We spoke about the DETECT trial before, but we it did. was now co-published for that Euroanesthesia conference. So it was accepted in anesthesiology and we spoke with the interim editors-in-chief and we were able to get that published just now. Yeah. during that conference to be able to show those results and to uh, simultaneously publish it in anesthesiology. Okay. So the DETECT trial was a trial to test the hypothesis that continuous finger cuff monitoring compared to intermittent osteomantic monitoring reduces hypotension both during the induction of general anesthesia and during surgery mm -hmm. in patients having uh, major non-cardiac surgery. So there were two uh, hierarchical uh, primary endpoints. One was the area under mean pressure of 65 during induction and the second one was the time weighted average so again the area normalized uh, for the monitoring time during surgery and um, 
yeah, we randomized 242 patients. Um, all of those patients had continuous um, finger cuff monitoring, so they were randomized to either um, unblinded finger cuff monitoring or to intermittent oscillometric monitoring with blinded finger cuff monitoring. Mm. And yeah, the results are just published now and in, during both periods, so during the induction period and during surgery, patients assigned to continuous finger cuff monitoring had substantially less hypotension um, duration and severity um, compared to patients who were assigned to intermittent oscillometric monitoring, bringing us to the conclusion that continuous monitoring reduces hypotension or helps clinicians reduce hypotension. And um, yeah, we need larger randomized trials to see whether this also translates into benefits uh, improvement in outcomes. But um, in the meantime, I would say that we as clinicians should consider using continuous um, monitoring uh, instead of intermittent monitoring in patients having non-cardiac surgery, both during induction and during surgery. And you need to decide whether you need an anterior catheter or you can, whether you can use a finger cuff. Yeah. So I want to back up for just a second and talk about the, the finger cuff technology, because I don't know if a lot of people understand exactly how that works and how that's different than a blood pressure cuff. Yeah, well, the blood pressure cuff, the basic measurement principle is oscillometry. So you have an occluding upper arm cuff that you wrap around an extremity, usually the upper arm. Um, and this, by definition, gives you blood pressure in an intermittent way. So yeah. you can cycle the measurement, of course, like every 2.5 minutes. Uh -huh. uh, usually it's done every five minutes. So that is what in the, in the U.S. guidelines, it tells you that blood pressure should be measured at least every five minutes. It doesn't make sense to do it like every 30 seconds um, because the measurement per se can kind of influence the measurement. Um, and and it's you, very hard to do it. That you quick. can't Absolutely. really do it that Absolutely. Way, especially so, yeah. if you have changing. So those of us who have higher blood pressures may have one at home that we're encouraged to use yeah. on a regular basis. True. You hit the button. Yeah. You're a bit disappointed your blood pressure is higher than you expected it to be because it hurts when it goes up the first time. <laughs> True. And, and then you hit it again and now already a few minutes have passed and then you don't like the second one. Yeah. So you hit it a third time. Is that Does that happen in clinical practice as well? Or? Well, of course, but the other way around, you know, it's uh, often you don't believe that there is hypotension. So you, uh, you have an oscillometric measurement and... Uh, it's low, then you repeat the measurement and uh, you can lose a couple of minutes just uh, trying to confirm your measurement. And or you don't get a measurement at all. That you know, if you, if you in, uh, going into a hypotensive yeah. state or something like that, you, and so maybe 10 minutes before you actually have a blood pressure, right? That is true. But even if it works perfectly well, then you yeah. usually have a blood pressure like every three or five minutes. Yeah. And well, the finger cuff is the main difference is is that it provides blood pressure continuously. Yeah. So those finger cuff technologies are um, also called vascular unloading technology or volume clamp method. And the basic principle is that you have a finger cuff that um, has an integrated infrared light source and detector, and this can measure the blood volume that is in the finger arteries. Mm -hmm. And then this finger cuff adapts its pressure very high frequently and. Uh, tries to keep the blood volume in the finger arteries constant uh, throughout the cardiac cycle where it would change all the time mm -hmm. and uh, from the pressure that is needed to keep the blood volume constant you can indirectly derive a continuous non-invasive uh, arterial blood pressure waveform that you hardly can um, distinguish from from a waveform that you record with an arterial catheter. Yeah. And so were there any limitations? I, I, I mean personally I've used this so I know there are some times where it's not 
absolutely 100% perfect. Blood pressure cuffs on the arm are not either. What are some of the limitations that we have to worry about when you use a finger cuff and that you experienced in the in the study? You need well in the study the um, number of patients in whom uh, the measurement was not possible was very low. But in general, of course, the system de- uh, requires intact finger perfusion. Mm-hmm. So um, that is a clear uh, prerequisite for the measurement. So you. Uh, shouldn't do it in patients in septic shock in the ICU on high doses of vasopressors um, or patients with uh, severe cardiovascular morbidity. Um, but those are not the patients who um, yep. are the target population for that kind of monitoring because in those patients you would use an arterial catheter anyway. Mm. Yeah. So we studied this in another trial. In the AWAKE trial, we showed that continuous intraterial monitoring is able to reduce hypertension compared to intermittent. But here we focused on patients who were supposed to have Oscillometric intermittent monitoring, so this is intermediate uh, risk patients, and in those patients the visibility of the measurement was uh, was good, so we could measure in uh, the very very little patients where the measurement really was not not possible, uh, yeah. and um, I think it's uh, well the strategy behind those uh, finger cuff methods should be to kind of replace the intermittent upper arm cuff and not to find niche indications where you could use it in patients who now have an arterial catheter. So I'm still a believer in the arterial catheter. Yeah. And I think that the uh, finger cuff should replace the intermittent upper arm cuff. Yeah. And personally, just I have started to use it so much more on cases where, you know, I mean, we have a large obese population that I take, we take care of in our facility. We're tucking their arms. It's very tough to get a blood pressure cuff when you have a surgeon leaning on it. I put a finger cuff on all those patients or someone that I'm kind of like on the fence where I probably don't need an arterial line, but it would be nice to have a continuous blood pressure line. And it has saved, you know, I mean, again, all anecdotal my experience, but it has saved me many times uh, to have that. With the Edwards technology, all the other variables are available. Yeah, then that's true. So you have everything. Cardiac output, volume, SVR, DPDT, Mm -hmm. EA, and and so on. Yeah. Because you've now got an arterial waveform, you can have mm-hmm. the whole lot. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. 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 And it's, you know, I, I mean, so many and in, in being in a quality role and looking at the large, pers- the, you know, the larger perspective of um, adverse outcomes because of issues with monitoring and technology and, and not necessarily having continuous blood pressure. I mean, this is very, you know, enlightening to me to, to see this because if we could have continuous blood pressure uh, that was accurate, you know, reliable, um, that would be, you know, wonderful to have. So. I, I have a question to, to Bernd, because you showed a study earlier this day in our symposium about the reliability of the upper arm cuff, which is still used in 95% mm-hmm. of the cases, let's say. Um, and I'm not sure if clinicians, this study is more than 10 years old that you showed, and, and I'm not sure, uh, sure if clinicians uh, are aware of that. What you were showing is that this study showed, if you compare these measurements to the gold standard being intra-arterial uh, measurement, that you underestimate mm. high blood pressures mm-hmm. and you overestimate low blood pressures, which is quite dangerous. Can you? How can it be that, that this important results, and it was not a small study, are not aware uh, in our community. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you know, confidence in measurement systems is a complicated issue. And sometimes uh, the method that is around for the uh, longest is uh, considered the most reliable. So everybody is just used to it. And the study you are referring to is indeed, it's more than 10 years old. And it's a retrospective method comparison study in more than 15,000 patients having surgery. And they compared uh, intra-arterial measurements with an arterial catheter to the uh, simultaneously oscillometric ones. And they show that there is the risk of substantially uh, overestimating low pressures. And this is something that you can uh, see in clinical practice basically every day because everybody has seen the situation that you place an arterial or someone places an arterial catheter, you induce anesthesia, and then the blood pressure on the monitor from the arterial catheter that you just inserted yep. is very low. And people won't believe it and they say, okay, I'm going to check this and I will do an oscillometric measurement. And then let's say the mean arterial pressure from the arterial catheter is 35 and from the oscillometric uh, cuff it is uh, 55. And then people feel reassured that there's no hypotension. And this is not true. Right. The real blood pressure from the arterial catheter that you just inserted is 35 and you just overestimated with your oscillometric measurement. We're getting the flashing red lights. Oh, is it time? Yeah. All right. Well, uh, anything else, Thomas Monty, that we need to, Not to cover moment. on those? We could talk for hours about this. I know. Is it? We, every time we, we will. <laughs> Interesting <laughs> topic and for relevant for patient care. Yeah, patient absolutely. Safety. Patient safety. I yeah. mean, that's what I keep Do we have the time thinking. for 20 more seconds? Do it. Yes. Because when we speak about oscillometric measurements, what we always forget, and I don't mention it because it means diving very, very deep into this technology, we don't even know what those systems do because the algorithms yes, are usually proprietary. Yes. Oh. So if we say we compare oscillometric to anything, yeah. we basically don't know what oscillometry is. So you would really need to say we use this type of monitor with this type of cuff yeah. and this uh, software version. And then we could make uh, a claim that it's good or it's bad. So it's a black box. We don't even know what those monitors it's a, do. It's a blacker box, isn't yeah. it? It's yeah. A, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so interesting. If you look at the mean that is on the, the blood pressure cuff versus what's on uh, any other technology. It's all that exactly. It's, we'll it's do crazy. that next time. We will, we will. All right, Bernd, Excellent. it's wonderful to talk thank to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thomas, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, it was my pleasure. Uh, and thank you for joining Top Men Talk here at Euro Anesthesia 2023. It's been a pleasure, gentlemen. Enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy the rest of your time here at the meeting, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Thank you. Thank Bye. you for having us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Top Men Talk. Thanks for downloading Top Med Talk. Don't forget to subscribe via your podcatcher. Don't forget to check us out on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And also, don't forget, Top Med Talk is the broadcasting arm of EdPom, evidence-based perioperative medicine. We'd love you to find out more about that. If you check out ebpom.org, you can find low prices on some of the conferences we're organizing around the world. Many of them are virtual and don't even involve you leaving your own home. Check out ebpom.org now.